Hello, listeners. Uh, Dan Rock here with the first recorded broadcast of the Borderlands podcast, um, bringing you enlightenment from the fringe. This evening, I have um, one of my brothers, my, in fact, my youngest brother, Sam, who is a uh, local businessman, uh, I would call him. Um, we're going to talk about his business, uh, any of the hurdles he's faced in opening that business. Uh, from the ground up, we may talk about how his business pertains to um, or how today's events such as coronavirus, uh, political climate, economic climate pertain to his business and just see where the conversation goes. We're going to use some, um, we'll have a little social lubrication going on here. Um, so there's that disclaimer. Uh, I will not discourage cursing, swearing, foul language. I think it enriches the discussion. Um, so if you uh, have any objection to that or have small children listening, you may tune out at this point. Uh, but here comes episode one of the Borderlands podcast uh, with my guest, Sam Denning. Sam, can you hear us now? Yep. Okay. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Samuel? I am uh, your youngest brother. I'm 36 years old. Like you said, I'm a small business owner here in Huntington, West Virginia. I own uh, a couple of small businesses. The number one uh, business that actually employs people is my lawn care business, which I've had for five years. Um, I also own some rental property and I manage people's rental property. Well, how did you get started in all this? Um, if I might offer some more background on you, you are a, um, college educated person, a master's degree recipient in the geosciences. So you've obviously not pursued that beyond, uh, your school. Correct. Um, you know, I've uh, come across some events in my life that have made me unable to use my degree. But, uh, you know, I had actually for a little while I was working at a gas station and then I began to work construction for our cousin Mel. Um, and all that while I was mowing lawns on the side for $20, $25 a yard. And uh, one day, you know, several years ago, I quit working for my cousin and decided, you know, if I truly took the initiative and mowed lawns as if it was a full-time 40-hour week job, I could I could truly make some legitimate money doing that. And, you know, I'd be in control of my own hours, my own, you know, my own life. Um, as I have begun to learn, if, if you are made for doing that sort of thing and you truly do work it as a job, then you don't really have any free time. And, you know, you kind of want to be self-employed because you think you can do whatever you want. But if you are of any success at it, in my opinion, at the beginning, at least, it takes over all of your time just to make it successful. And I'm the type of person that I do enjoy that, although now I have two young kids, so it makes it a little bit hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, we've always been very proud of you for taking your life in the direction it's gone, uh, giving the uh, the 
large pitfall you had at the start of your uh, adult life, getting out of college and, and graduate school. Um, and to be honest with you, I can never imagine starting something on my own from the ground up. I've uh, not to say I'm not a, a driven person, but I've, I've, I guess had different goals. You know, um, I'm a medical professional and I've always worked as an employee basically. Um, only just now in my career getting into the private practice and experiencing some of the business aspect of it. But yeah, I've, um, never even thought myself capable of starting something uh, like you have and building it from the ground up and being, and furthermore being successful and put money in the bank and putting food on the table. That's uh, something to be very proud of, I think. And I think all of us are very proud of you. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'd like to think that it's, it's gone very well. And, um, you know, I've been able to provide for my family, just like you say. But, you know, it's it's interesting because I didn't originally, you know, I was just taking the money, putting it in the bank. And, you know, it, it, at first it seems like just a simple thing. You go out and you cut grass. Somebody either hands you cash or gives you a check. And, you know, you put it in the bank and you don't really think about it. Well, then as business began to grow and I went down to Kenny Queen Hardware here locally and over in Lavalette and, found out that I could walk out the door with one of those skag orange, you know, commercial lawnmowers walk behind. I, uh, pulled the trigger on that, which forced me to buy a trailer. I had started the business out of the bed of my pickup truck, but I, oh, so, I remember that. vehicle. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I kind of upgraded, uh, and that moved me into mowing lawns that weren't just cookie cutter size lawns in Southside Huntington, West Virginia. You know, it got me into mowing big, huge fields and larger lawns, which he obviously paid more money. But then it all, it opened up kind of the floodgates to where I did get immersed in truly the, what you would call, you know, the bureaucracy and the red tape of running a business, running a small business. I got caught uh, mowing down at Mass Mutual, uh, which our uncle Jim Cummings worked at, and the code enforcement guy caught me, and he said, you know, do you have a business license in the city? And I said, oh, no, you know, I'm just mowing for my uncle. And he said, nobody's just mowing for their uncle that, you know, rides one of these commercials. Very interesting that you would uh, take this that direction. That was going to be my, uh, probably my next question, is at what point did you incorporate? You know, at what point did you go from, um, just yeah. a cash business, um, have people hand you cash or write checks to yourself and deposit in your own, uh, personal checking account to forming some kind of, I assume an LLC and, uh, having corporate accounts and tra- tracking expenses and, yeah, and, it, and whatnot. What, when did that happen? Like how, how far into this were you? About a year. So my, I went one whole summer under the radar, so to speak. And then at the start of one of the summers, you know, I got caught like I was just explaining, and that led me down to going to the city, getting a city license. Well, to have a city license, you have to have a state of West Virginia business license. You have to have all these licenses, which that was really no big deal. But it, I decided to consult an attorney and an accountant on, you know, before I start getting all these licenses, should I, you know, make a name for my business and make it an LLC, which I did. I made it into pretty generic uh, LLC, just called Sam Denning Services LLC, but opened up a checking account, started to run all the the money through that and, uh, you know, paid these licensing fees. And I became legitimate as far as that was concerned, but still, and this is what I would say for any small business owner, it is complicated. The government expects you to know the rules. Uh, 
and there's just no way that you can just know them yeah, without so that, going through the motions of starting would, a business. I would presume that that's the real reason to hire an accountant, to hire an yes. attorney. Um, as they say, ignorance of the law does not mean innocence of the law, right? So you can't claim that you don't know all these rules, all the ins and outs of a business practice. You you just have to do them. Right. And so you have to bring in outside help to, to get you to do that, especially given your non-business background, your your, your basis <laughs> in geosciences, right? Yes. And, 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 you know, so all of these things, uh, you know, having to hire an accountant, I ended up having to get QuickBooks software. I ended up having people working for me, so I had to have payroll. You know, I'm I'm a lawn care guy. I'm a guy that, uh, you know, works with my hands, you know, eight to ten hours every day. I don't have time to go home and figure out somebody's payroll. I mean, there's just not enough hours in yeah, the day. Yeah, absolutely. So all of this adds to the cost of your lawn. So when, so when I'm mowing your lawn, it makes it that much more expensive. Mm-hmm. But one of the big things that struck me before I really had started to hire employees, so this was at the beginning, was I started getting every quarter something in the mail about uh, my sales tax withholding. And I'm like, What? And I wasn't charging people sales tax. Oh, people, sales tax. You're not even talking about uh, not even projected talking about income not tax. Not income tax, not sales, sales tax. tax. For, um, that's at the city or municipal level. Yeah, or, at both, no, the, both the state and the city. State and city, correct. So okay. I, I was responsible for passing on the sales tax, you know, the 1% for Huntington and the 6% for uh, West Virginia because lawn mowing is a service industry, which is at the point of sale you're supposed to collect sales tax. Let me stop you there for a second. As a as the business owner and the employer of however many uh, employees you had, what what's your liability for that Huntington user fee? Well, any time one of my employees worked in the city for a week, I had to put that as a line item on their payroll pay stub, and it came out of their. So it's just a, it's a, a withholding. Yeah, it's a withholding. There's no employer contribution. Yeah, no employer. It's, it's, con- it's just strictly the employees sole, uh, paying okay. for the right to work in Huntington. I see. Um, but the sales tax thing was the biggest confusion, and that required me getting QuickBooks. I began to have to create invoices, charge people, you know, whether or not they lived within the city or lived outside the city. You know, yeah. if, if they lived just in the county, it was 6%. If they lived in the city of Huntington, it was 7 Then I had to tell my customers, I'm sorry, but I'm now having to charge you, you know, $30 times, you know, 7% sales tax. A lot yeah. of them were cool with it, but, you know, people don't especially people starting a small business in, in something like lawn care, that's the last thing you would ever think you're going to have to do. So there's all these elements which seem like they would really be a drag, but to tell you the truth, the hardest part of the lawn care uh, job, the lawn care business, is the labor. The actual getting labor yes, I, to show this, up. In this region, yeah. especially, I would venture, um, yeah, I think we have not a great pool to draw from when it comes to that. Uh, I mean, it's just been my observation. There's a lot of uh, disability, and I'm air quoting for those listening. Um, a lot of drug use. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is there's a lot of people unemployable, certainly unemployable at um, uh, a larger business, a national corporation or a state corporation. And I think that even pans out to a very local, very um, small business. There's a lot of people 
unemployable. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, in, in, in my just couple, couple years of business, I've employed multiple recovering addicts, multiple people that were current addicts, uh, people that just wanted to work for me to try to steal my equipment and find me with my back turned. Um, I did have a lot of people that were very good at lawn care, but they all, with the exception of people that were family friends. So I guess they had this sense of, uh, you know, responsibility and accountability, but, but everybody else, everybody, you know, I either had, they did not have transportation. I had to pick them up. Most of the time they weren't there when they said they would be there or they couldn't get a ride to my house. I spent an extra hour or two every day making sure I had a full crew of people. And oftentimes I didn't get the full crew. So it it made it that much harder and it felt like a big waste of time. Um, and then, you know, this whole battle with payroll and you, you know, you want to have workers comp on your employees, pay them on payroll, have contributing members of society. But a lot of these types of people still, if I told them that they had to be paid on paper, you know, AKA payroll, um, they didn't want to work for me. No, they'd just flake out on you. Yeah. They, they, they just wanted cash. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's a, I think that's a uphill battle for every labor type of job. Um, and probably a lot of other jobs too. You know, I haven't really had, had to think about it, but the whole experience in starting the lawn care business in general that I've run has opened my eyes to everything, where the money goes, who collects the sales tax, you know, it's, it's actually the business. They collect it for the States and they're solely responsible for, you know, basically telling the truth as to how much stuff they've sold mm-hmm. and passing that money on. There's yeah, a is that lot of responsibility put on the individual subject, subject to audit, I assume. Yes. Yeah. And so it's really, there's an awful lot put. And so if you're a big business employing over, over a hundred or over 500 people or whatever they would consider to be a, a big business, you know, you can, you can make it navigate through these things. You probably have accountants and lawyers on staff as part of your employees. And, um, you know, it's no big deal, but if you're someone like me running a small business, each one of these issues that we've already discussed are pretty major issues that you have to kind of navigate through on your own trial and error. Just hope you don't get audited that year because, uh, you know, things are going to go wrong. So those are the things that scare off a lot of people that, that start off businesses. And what I learned is I, I kind of started my, all of my businesses, the rental and the property management, I kind of started it just, I'm just that kind of guy. I just went for it. And then I started figuring it out as I was in the middle of it in the trenches. Yeah. So I, excuse me, I do want to move on to your, um, rental business. And I I think you dabble in some uh, handyman services, uh, primarily nowadays, but I I do want to spend some more time in the lawn care business. I've, I've always been curious, uh, at the, at the peak of your lawn service, um, how many lawns were you doing in a week's time? Uh, last summer I was doing 97 yards every single week. So a hundred basically. Yeah, basically a hundred. What, uh, with what size crew? Uh, I tried to have at least two people with me. So, so be three, three people total. Yeah. And what kind of uh, equipment are we talking about? I used a nice all-wheel drive, like all four-wheel Husqvarna push mowers, two of them. had a Skag V-Ride 52-inch mower. That's one of the ones where it has a metal plate that flips down and, and bounces on springs. That one's real good on my knees. Um, and then I had a Skag 
52-inch walk behind, which has one of those sulky things. It's, they call them mm-hmm. sulkies or velkies, and they're actually wheels that roll on the ground. And those make the best patterns in the yards, yeah. uh, the best stripes. But they, if the yard's real bumpy, and oftentimes people, you know, I now have experience in this, but uh, y- you can look at a yard and it looks flat, but when you get on those velkies, you can feel every single bump. It, it jars you around, kills your knees. Um, and then I've got, I use, uh, steel weed eaters. I've got three of them, uh, the FS 91s. I swear by them. I've recently bought a couple more powerful ones, but you know, the 91s are all you really need, especially if you're mowing people's grass every week, you know, it keeps it down. You know, it may not weed eat a, uh, you know, a field that hasn't been touched for, uh, you know, six months, but it'll, it, they do, mm-hmm. they do the trick. And then I use a 16 foot, um, uh, landscaping trailer you know with two foot sides built up with like mesh metal uh and it, it's done done really well what's your work week look like uh at, at that peak at the doing 100 lawns a week it was at at least a six day work week we would try to start at 8 a.m i would either leave my house to go pick up people at eight or some of them would meet me at my garage at 8 a.m and we would work till six or seven every day and if it rained, really got everything screwed up. Mm-hmm. I always like to say I'd like to have Sunday off, but usually I did. But if it rained, it definitely wasn't going to happen. And then, like I said, where I own property too, there was always in the summertime, everybody's moving. <laughs> so people are moving mm-hmm. out, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I have downsized my lawn business a little bit because I was paying people to do things in my property that I could have otherwise been doing myself. So from a financial standpoint, I needed to find that happy medium mm-hmm. and I needed to try Cause I have, like I said, I have two young sons. I needed to try to maybe quote, buy some of my life back. Yeah. There's a quality of life aspect there or lifestyle, if you will. Yeah. Uh, we talk about that all the time in the medical field. Um, you know, you can make all the money in the world, but if you don't have time to spend it or time to spend with your family, um, that does not equate to lifestyle. I was also curious, how do you determine, um, the fee or the charge for a lawn? Is that just, mm-hmm. is there like a market rate for that? Is it based on square footage or acreage? Well, the way that I did it, and there are some standard things that I know of from people I've talked to in our community, but you know, I tried to do, after I got all this stuff set up, I tried to go with a minimum, uh, a minimum cut price of $35 plus tax. And that was because I called a bunch of people, a bunch of my buddies, and that was what they were doing. So I figured I would stay in line with that. Um, then, but I'm still, I still have customers that I started out with that I, that get charged a lot less than that. And if I mow a whole bunch of rental properties for people, they get charged less because I'm mowing like 20 properties for one person. So they're getting a discount. But when it comes to someone's larger yard, I base it off of, how long I think it's going to take us and how much I know that it costs me to pay, you know, how much I'd like to make per hour to run my equipment and how much to pay the guys. So let's say I'm paying somebody $10 an hour and it would normally cost. So with payroll and everything, it might cost 15 bucks for each person. And I've got two guys with me. So that would be 30 for an hour. Let's say I'd like to make 30 an hour to cover my expenses with gas and, and all that. 
So we're yeah, talking. So there's a there's a profit margin consideration. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking sixty dollars an hour to go out there and run my equipment. If I go look at someone's yard and I say, well, that yard will take me an hour with this equipment to mow, then I'm going to charge you, you know, sixty bucks, maybe maybe a little bit more because I'll throw a little wiggle room in there. If it's if I think that's an hour and a half, and I the thing with me is I've mowed so many yards and so many different types of yards, I'm pretty accurate as to how long it's going to take. So, mm-hmm. so that's how I kind of started setting up yeah. my price for that. If I go and mow your yard and it's going to take me three hours, it's going to cost you 180 bucks. I see. Okay. Well, um, folks, we're going to take a little break here. I don't know if you just heard the cork come off uh, the bottle. I poured Sam a small sample of some bourbon I just picked up the other day. This is a rabbit hole, the Derringer. It's a straight bourbon whiskey finished in sherry casks. I had a sample of this earlier today when uh, one of my other brothers visited. So I know how it is on the palate. Um, I'm going to have Sam try it while we just take a quick break. And I'm going to play some of that intro music again because I haven't figured out how to pause this thing. Awesome. folks we're back um sam tells me that he thinks i can probably just stop the recording and start again but um there's obviously going to be a learning curve here for me um so taste some of this whiskey sam tell me what you think Mm. that's delicious isn't it oh yeah definitely um and it's not super hot. It's got that sweetness from the, the sherry oak casks. Um, I just love what they do with the bourbon nowadays. There's, they've taken it all these different directions. It used to be so boring. You either had um, rye bourbon, you know, straight rye, or you had weeded bourbon. And that was about all you had to choose from. Um, but now, you know, they're, they're, they're aging them differently. We're seeing lots of really old bourbons come out uh, that are... In, in fact, smooth, surprisingly. Um, it's been interesting the last few years getting into more and more spirits, more and more bourbons. Um, so this segment, Sam, um, I want to get into the, um, the property aspect of your business. And uh, I would like you to just start out telling me how on earth did you get into property to begin with? Because uh, I know you probably didn't have 
um, the financial means whatsoever to start into that at first. I know you had to have had help, but um, you've managed to build quite a portfolio of yeah. properties in a very short time. Well, I think this is the thing that the property thing is what fascinates me the most. I enjoy doing it. I like to take care of things. You know, you obviously need to enjoy people because with property, you're going to be dealing with a lot of different people, a lot of different issues, a lot of different personalities. But how did I get started? Well, earlier in this podcast, I said I was working at a gas station. So that time I was living with our mother. I had no expenses other than fuel for my truck and if I wanted to go eat at McDonald's or somewhere. And so I saved every dime that I made and put it in the bank. And also I was cutting grass on the side and I had about after a year or two had 10 grand in the bank. Well, that's amazing. Um, I can't imagine saving that amount of money at that age, uh, doing that sort of job. I mean, that's something I was not even capable of doing until I became uh, a physician and started earning six figures. You know, it was only then that I could put $10,000 in the bank. Well, That's crazy, dude. You know, at that time, too, you know, you got to understand I really wasn't able to do anything. Oh, it's kind of like uh, the COVID situation, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. you, were on, you were on lockdown yeah, before on lockdown. there actually was a lockdown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, not much money went out. Uh, and little bit was coming in, but even a trickle coming in adds up. Um, and then... This is where I would say that everybody, and I don't want to say everybody, but but I think to get into the property game, to do it well, you have to be helped by somebody. Uh, either a bank is willing to go out on a limb or maybe a partner or just some, you know, shadow financier or something. Well, that's a good point. I mean, there's always going to be help from a financial institution. Yeah. Not necessarily an individual. I I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So, you know, unless you are just truly independently wealthy, meaning, you know, you have hundreds of thousands of dollars at your disposal of disposable income to just be able to drop onto a property and it doesn't affect you otherwise. But you know, you gotta, gotta remember this whole time I was still working all the time, but I um, went in with a friend of mine named Dwayne Stoner and he and I, he said, I'll help you buy your first property. And I think he saw promise in me cause I'd been working pretty hard and I knew him. He's the father of one of my best friends in high school. Um, and he always knew that I was into this. So we went in halves on a rundown duplex, but it was rented. Uh, the people were um, HUD tenants, so they were getting government-subsidized rent. So the money was kind of automatic into the bank account. So we bought it and collected the rent in a partnership. And then Dwayne said, do you want to buy a rundown house over near St. Mary's? He said, I will lend our business the money to buy it and fix it but your labor will be free. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to go down we're going to work one or two days a week and we're going to get this thing turned around and rent it or sell it. So this is how I truly got my start. I did that. You know, I worked, we got it done. I kept track of all the accounting and knew how much time I had in it and how much time Dwayne had in it and how much time, you know, we had labor wise, but of course we weren't paying ourselves. And then we started to rent it. Uh, for $700 a month. And then about a year or so went by and Dwayne and I wanted to dissolve our partnership. So he bought 
bought out my half of the duplex, and then we came up with a price for the house. Well, what was the reason for that? The, well, the dissolving I, dissolution is that a word? Uh, yeah, your, well, your partnership because I was actually wanting to get some of my money back because I was buying a home for myself. I see. Okay. Yeah of which I had help from our father to buy the house, but it was in total disrepair. And, you know, I was ready to move out of our mom's house. And so I had, he helped me buy it. So here's, so far I've gotten help from Dwayne Stoner and help from our father to buy my first home to live mm-hmm. in, um, which he financed it. So it's not like he co-signed it, but it wasn't super expensive, but he's making interest off of me and I've never missed a payment. So from that standpoint, I don't feel particularly bad he's making money off of me Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but uh i it was unlivable it was really run down the roof leaked it was nasty so i told Dwayne i wanted to cash out of our business if he was willing to buy me out so we set a price so i walked away with about forty thousand bucks out of a ten thousand dollar investment with Dwayne. that's remarkable that over over how long a period of time a year God, what's the return on that? 300%? Yeah, significant. 400%? What it, I, it was all my sweat equity in that mm-hmm. house that we worked on. Because we bought the house for $11,000. We only put $17,000 worth of material into it. So we had a $28,000 house, but we were renting it for $700 a month. Mm-hmm. So when we And it was brand new. Everything was new on the inside. So when we went to value it, you know, we said it was probably worth about $70,000. So he gave me 30 of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we paid himself back, you know, and things. So I used that money to fix up the house on Four Pole Road that I lived in, made it super, super nice, and it had a piece of rental in the back, a garage apartment. So all this started out slowly. We're talking a year or two, you know, one thing a year maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, I fixed it up super nice. I moved into it. I met my current wife at the time. And... She, so I'm going to tell you guys some stuff. Nobody knows a lot of this stuff. So it's going to be interesting. So this is how it truly went down. Um, I refinanced that house because the bank didn't know I had a loan with our dad on it. Mm-hmm. And so I kept paying dad and I thought I'm going to, I really learned the banking system. I refied the house that I lived in, got a great rate on it. And you, I had used cash from the sale of my part of the business to Dwayne and walked away with $80,000 from the bank. Now, because I had no loan as far as they were concerned. Folks that are listening can't see me uh, doing a sideways glance. The numbers don't add up to me and they never have. Anytime you and I talk about this stuff, I'm like, how in the hell so, does this money stuff work? You've clearly figured out how the bank, works. how banking works. Yeah. So what, what I did is so I did put about, 25,000 and fixing the house up. It was super nice. Granite countertop kitchens, all new kitchens, new central heat and air, new drywall rewired. Yeah. Well, and that's yeah. all expense, expense, so, expense, yeah. expense. So I paid 25 for that. But then when I had it reappraised, it was a, the whole kit caboodle appraised for like 130 some thousand. Well, the bank said my income didn't allow me to pull out that much on the loan. So it would be like getting a traditional loan for a house, except I didn't, as far as they knew, have a lien on it. So the money they were going to give me just was coming in the form of cash. Okay. Okay. So I would still have to pay our father on the side and then pay the bank for the $80,000 mortgage I was taking on the house. But I had bigger plans because I, (laughs) at the same time as that was going on, my wife 
um, also when she came into our marriage, she had a considerable amount of money. Uh, and another house came for sale on four pole road, which was, I don't think I was, um, privy to this. Yeah. I didn't know that, uh, that she had brought any money to this country. She brought, she brought, she brought, (laughs) I mean, I knew that she, she, uh, was affluent in her family. She brought a chunk to the table to the point where the house I currently live in. So this all happened at the same time, um, which is much bigger house, more land. It actually touches the land of the house I'm discussing that I refied. Mm-hmm. And I was able to buy it for $40,000 cash. And then I slowly fixed it up and moved into it, refied the one, took the eighty grand out, and rented it, which more than covers the the mortgage payment on it. I see. So, <clears throat> So basically that property that I used to live in that dad helped us, helped me buy. That's income at this point. At this point, it brings in $1,350 a month. And the mortgage payment on that uh, $80,000 is 250 bucks. Over what term? Is that 30 years? 30, 30 years. So okay. I pay 600 yeah. on it every month. And it should be paid off much quicker. Yeah. But, so I didn't even use that $80,000 to buy the house that my wife and I now live in. I used her money. I took that $80,000. So this is how you grow real quick. I took that $80,000 and put it. You take advantage of your wife. <laughs> yeah, I guess. No. <laughs> well, I gave her a much better house with her money. Yeah, and no. she, she does like it. But, um, <laughs> and it had a bigger garage for my lawn mowing equipment. So, so, so keep in mind, everybody listening, that I was still mowing 60 to 90 some yards a week during this time period. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, that, I forgot the, yeah, the timeline here. You're so still working your nuts off. Still working my business. balls off. And I, so I'm still earning an actual, I don't want to say that the rental property isn't an actual living, but it's a passive investment. So I was still making, I still had a job, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and during this time, I began to manage properties, which brought me a steady income too. So I took that 80 grand and I put it down on two properties as down payments. Mm-hmm. So I leveraged the money again. Yeah, here's this term leverage. You've dropped this term to me a million times. And I still to this day can't even understand how the fuck that even works. <laughs> so, but uh, I, well, I want you to try to explain it to me for the a millionth and one and first time and explain it to the listeners. What the hell does okay. leverage exactly mean? So I took so if you if, if everybody remembers how this all of this property stuff came from an initial investment of $10,000 from my pocket that I saved from working at a gas station. So I've leveraged that $10,000 to mm-hmm. buy the duplexes, buy the help fix up the house by St. Mary's, sold that off, then took that, that money, put it to fix up something else, hawked that house, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then take, so took that money. And when I say leverage is to make it, more so, I used it to buy. Put I put fifty thousand of it as a down payment on a six-unit apartment building okay. that bring that brings in at the time brought in rents of twenty four hundred a month. So, like I said, my my actual payment on that eighty thousand was was covered by the house itself, the original house. So I didn't need the payment to be made by the six-unit that I was buying with part of the money. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to the listeners. Um, it it was already being paid for by the property that uh, I got it from. Mm-hmm. So I was using it on another property, which would generate me even more returns on it. 
Mm-hmm. So I put that fifty down. I think that the asking price was two hundred thousand. So I had a loan of one hundred and fifty. It's commercial, so they did it over fifteen years, and the payment on that is uh, eleven hundred and no, it's twelve hundred and fifty dollars, twelve hundred and fifty a month. Brings in at that time was bringing in. Now I want to interrupt you on this. <clears throat> um, how does this compare to my mortgage, for example, where? Well, actually, I said I can't say this, but so the average person's mortgage, my mortgage, I just pay the, I, I just pay the bank uh, on the mortgage. But I think the average person has uh, escrow money going in. You know, this for that's for homeowners insurance. It's for uh, uh, mortgage insurance. It's for property taxes, what have you. Is in my, when you talk about your mortgages, your commercial mortgages, um, do those also have escrow payments going into them? No. The 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 eighty thousand I originally said did, does the one where it was my home, my home I lived in. Yeah. So the, now the, that makes sense. Now, but what about your your rental properties? The rental properties, no. no. So when I tell you that I'm bringing in, you know, the payments twelve fifty, and I'm bringing in twenty four hundred, you know, I still have to pay the taxes. I still have to pay the so. Those run on that particular building about three hundred and fifty a month more. So, like, if you take them all mm-hmm. annually and divide them out per month, it's three fifty. So it's. I know we're kind of going off track here. Yeah, it's we're but, getting to uh, pretty that, mathematical. Well, uh, I'm just curious: is that something that you pass directly on to the tenants, the you know, the people that occupy the properties? Do you, do you uh, fold that into their monthly payment somehow, or? I mean, no. I guess you would have to, even if it's not nominally. Yeah, it, so, well, see, the rents were already set when I bought the place, so it was kind of it was what it was. But if you, rents and most of most of what I own are one bedroom apartments, and and rent pricing is kind of set by the housing authority, like the government. What really? Yeah, it, it's they don't. I mean, you can make it whatever you want, but the going rate for a one bedroom starts baseline at at what the government's willing to pay, which uh, is four hundred and. Twenty-three is that regionally set because clearly a rental property in Huntington, West Virginia, is cheaper I, per square foot than it is in Los I Angeles. I think it is. You know, I may be speaking more than I know, but I mean, it, it like in Huntington, they they are willing to pay X amount for a one bedroom for someone. You want some more of this? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but I don't want to get in too much into the weeds on it. Okay. So the okay. The, the overall point is: is it it covered its own? You know, if yeah. things broke, so at the end of the day on that six unit, I may have gotten to keep $500 a month if it was fully rented, which is one apartment. Mm-hmm. So I was able to be okay if it was five-sixths rented and if, okay. and if, and if yeah. nothing broke. So yeah. the moral of the story is you still have to work that like a job, mm-hmm. but what are you getting out of it? You're building equity into a building. So you're getting ownership of something without your own money. There might, without your own money i i love the sound of that yeah <laughs> well technically speaking without your own money yeah. um and so i still had 30 grand of that 80 left <laughs> and i used it to rebuy the duplex that mr stoner and i had originally bought together and then i sold back to him and then i bought it back. okay so it was then owned by me and uh, almost owned completely so i had a very small payment on it and it was a steady income coming in every month so I do now own, I hate to say it like this, but I own significantly more than what I've discussed already, but it's been all done 
through the same tactics, I guess you should, you know, saying, mm-hmm. you know, I let my equity build up on a couple of those properties and then refinanced them. They appraised for more than what I paid for them. I pulled the cash out of the property mm-hmm. and um, used it to put down on other properties. I see. So uh, that that's a strategy that I guess to make it somewhat makes sense to me. It's in a, to tell the listeners, Sam has always pitched this to me. He wants me to become a partner in a business. And I have to be frank, um, I have been unable to wrap my head around any of this math and any of this, any of the logic behind this. And to me, it's always seemed like a, a, a tremendous leap of faith, a, a big risk to take. Um, so if just, I know this is just kind of an, an aside. Um, we got kind of sidetracked here. I apologize, but so what? So you're leveraging one property against another, against another, against another, whatever. I, mean, I imagine that like you can create a chain of leverages. Yeah, correct. Well, what if the what if there a situation arose where a note was called on something? I mean, does that does everything just fall apart if that happens? Yeah, it could. Like, so the things that would bring the make the ship sink so to speak. So I've, I've set myself up pretty well because I've refinanced all of my stuff at lower rates recently and my payments are less. So I had told you that that one, I had to have five, six rented. Well, now it's simultaneously while rates have gone down and I refinanced it, rents have also gone up. And I noticed yeah, when I bought they, it. And they will like yeah, and every the, year. So the right? rent, yeah, the rents, yeah. the rents were somewhat depressed when I bought it in the first place. And I've done a little bit of stuff to fix them up. So I'm bringing in over 3000 on that six unit I mentioned earlier when it was 2400 So now mm-hmm. I can get away with two-thirds of it being empty. It, okay. You, you see what that I'm saying? Sense. That so, makes sense, yeah. And so I have a lot more leeway on, on, all, the, on all the buildings, um, even though I drew money out of it, um, which I know that sounds crazy, but it's a factor of rents going up and rates going down. Mm-hmm. Um, but if somebody called a note on something, it, it could be it could be bad, especially if the property wasn't worth enough for you to be able to sell it and get the money out of it. Now, one thing, you know, if you had to sell it for what what they call a short sale or, or you know, you're underwater. But I think most of my properties I've kept in good condition. Um, people want so that this is you can get crappy properties and you can still rent them for the going rate for a one bedroom and you're going to sit and you're going to fight people moving in and out constantly and i'm not saying i don't have issues but i don't think for the amount of tenants that i have i have that many crazy issues and part of it is i rent rent to some college students in one area and then I've made nice, desirable one-bedrooms. They're nearby Ritter Park, most of them. I'm trying to predict where I think things will be good in 10 years instead of where they look good right this second. Because yeah, so the, in the real estate, they always say location, yes, location, location. Is that, is that true with the, the rental yeah. shit that you're talking yeah, about? People yeah, people want to live in a certain place. You know, <clears throat> where's town getting good, you know? But... Um, if you if you miss the mark on that, you could be stuck with a property nobody wants to rent, and then when you're fifty or sixty, because ultimately you want to sell this stuff. It's a yeah. retirement plan, right? And and how awful would it be for me to be sixty years old and be unable to sell the yeah, properties and, I have? Because I'm telling you, the landscape 
um, and it's worrisome. Ge- in this a ge- geographic landscape, the, the neighborhoods, whatever you want to call it, the uh, in 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 Huntington, West Virginia, has changed drastically since I was a very young child. Um, it's it has been so hard to imagine this coming that um, a previously very affluent, very safe uh, part of town would be uh, riddled with crime and litter and ruin. Um, and, and what I'm talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, this is just my observation, is the uh, Fairfield area, mm-hmm. even uh, extending into perhaps the Ritter Park area. You know, I think Ritter, <clears throat> Ritter Park area when we were children, um, the, the very elite of Huntington lived there. Um, that's where the old money was. Um, very, very large homes, very well-kept homes, old homes. Um, and now I think if you just go, I don't know, a couple of blocks north of there, it's in ruins, uh, and it's uh, it's fraught with crime, and theft, and drug use, and and uh, yeah, this, dilapidated um, homes, and condemned homes, and stuff. I I mean, am I wrong? That's what I I, no, I feel like I see that. You're right, and that's kind of what I'm saying. Um, you have to truly pick a niche in the. So you're right. So, so I don't want to like disagree with what you're saying. You know it very run down the opioid epidemic the loss of a lot of manufacturing jobs in town um the, these places that used to be kind of you know residential kids riding their bicycles down the roads you know in the 50s and yeah. 60s are kind of are, are run down i mean there's a couple bastions of hope in the south side of huntington where people still want to live but most people are mm-hmm. moving outside of town so i think that that is true, and I think that's why you have to really do your research when you buy uh, these types of investments, and and that's the way you have to look at them as investments, not necessarily the people in them. They're real people, but you you got to make your money back, or it's not worth it. Um, but you know, the last couple things I've bought have been either out on the road I live on, which is out in the country, and not only do you not get feed to death like you do in Huntington, but it's desirable. People do want to live out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm trying to get out Route 10 a little ways. It's, I feel like a little bit safer. Things may decay out there, but it'll, it's it's going to happen much slower. Or they may, they may go up, but it's mm-hmm. going to be, and that's one thing in Huntington that, that, it, that is good for a property investor. Things happen, but they happen slowly. Yeah. So um, th- there has to be a sustained demand for property outside the city limits uh, with acreage or, you know, some distance separation from neighbors. And this is what I try to articulate to my colleagues all the time. People are, so for the listeners out there, I, uh, I live in Huntington or technically I have a, I have a Huntington address. I don't live in the, the city limits of Huntington, but I work in Charleston and I have uh, roughly a one hour uh, commute uh, in each direction every day to my place of work. All of my colleagues ask me, 
why don't you move to Charleston? And my response to them is, well, first of all, I'm in love with where I live. Um, oh, this place is awesome. I have acreage, um, which I could probably very easily expand on. I can, I'm certain that I could purchase adjacent acreage for very small dollar amounts, relatively small dollar amounts. And even as it sits now, I'm very far separated from any neighbors. It's a very private property. It's a brand new home with modern appliances. Um, it's a spacious home. I mean, I'm, we're not talking about a mansion here. It's not a lavish home. Um, but it, it, it works for me. It works for my family. Um, and we really enjoy the separation from the rest of the community. Now, I know that sounds terrible. Um, I mean, it's not to say that we don't enjoy going into Huntington and, and dining or going to the, to the mall and shopping, whatever, but we truly enjoy being separated from the rest of the community. I mean, there's just nothing to worry about out here. As long as the water's running, as long as the electricity's flowing out here, we're doing great. So uh, to, to get back to, I guess, my original point, there's always, there. I feel like, personally, there should always be a demand for property outside of city limits so you're not subjected to uh, all the regulations and restrictions of a city or municipality and you know maybe you're separated from other human beings yeah i i think that especially in today's climate and i don't want to go too deeply into that but i think that there's an even more desire to get get to yourself you know, be, be, be out in the country and have your own place, you know, your own space. You can go out and maybe walk in the woods or, you know, you, you just don't have something. I always said right it's a place that you. I could just unzip my fly and piss out in the lawn. Yeah. And nobody's going to say No anything. one will, no, well, no one will say anything because no one will see it. But, you know, I want to say <laughs> part of the decay of Huntington, and I don't necessarily want to blame our current mayor or, or whatever, maybe it's a series of decisions, but I liken this issue to, so I'll, I'll highlight the issue in a second, but I, I liken it to declining, declining attendance at, let's say, like a Marshall football game, so to speak. Um, if you see a declining attendance at the football games, you're not bringing in as much money in ticket sales. What is the knee jerk reaction to do at Marshall for football tickets? Uh, raise the ticket price, raise the price of tickets yeah. to make up for the windfall or for the loss. Absolutely. Well, what and is raising wrong idea? Yeah, cl- wrong idea. What people is people buy if, fewer of them? People buy less tickets. You yeah. make it less affordable. You fill even less of the stadium. So, oh my God, you get scared and you raise it again. You raise it and raise it and raise it. Fifteen mm-hmm. years. Fifteen mm-hmm. years goes by and you're at half attendance. Yeah. Well, folks listening here, I think that's exactly what has happened to Huntington, West Virginia. You have I, people move out, you raise things, you add fees. Oh, my God, more people are gone. You raise the fees. You make it cost more and more and more and more to live in Huntington, West Virginia. And then what do you get? You get what you see right now. Well, so, hell, yes, I agree with you. Um, that Since I have lived here as, as a grown-ass man and, you know, taking care of myself and, and paying my way into society, <clears throat> Yes, the expenses here have grown 
I can't, I mean, I couldn't tell you a percentage, but I've seen the addition of the Huntington user fee, which is just a payroll tax uh, for people who work in Huntington. It, it's regardless of where you live. Hey, you got it wrong, man. It's the pleasure well, of working. Well, yeah, the pleasure of working. Sorry. Whatever. What the <laughs> fuck ever. Uh, then they've also uh, instituted the municipal sales tax here, which is 1%. If I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, for the time being, 1%. Yeah, so now if I look back, and uh, it's interesting where this conversation has gone. I, I love this. I, I don't, and I hope you're okay with oh, this. Oh, I'm totally fine. Um, I want to reflect back on uh, my years in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, that's where I did my anesthesiology training. I spent a total of seven years there, seven plus years. Um, the it was a very interesting uh, taxation structure. The, Pennsylvania is a Commonwealth state, and I don't one hundred percent understand what a Commonwealth state is. But what, what it meant to me when I lived there was that the taxation was more local than it was state. Uh, we, there were higher municipal taxes, and it was lower state taxes. Uh, at the time that I lived in Pennsylvania, it was a flat income tax to the state. It was not income dependent, and it was a flat uh, income, not sales tax, income tax to the municipality that you lived in. Uh, so I gave, I think, around f- four to five percent of my income to the state of Pennsylvania, and. Um, one percent of my income to the uh, municipality that I lived in, which was McCandless Township, and I gave one and a half percent to Allegheny County. Um, now, the the sum total of those fees was less than the taxes I pay here in West Virginia. Believe it or not. The income tax in uh, West Virginia is progressive, meaning the more you earn, the more you pay. Uh, but I want to go. I want to reflect back to my time in Pittsburgh. Um, I saw di- direct services provided for the fees that I paid, and that was the most remarkable thing about living there. Was um, the, where I lived uh, in the wintertime. So uh, Pittsburgh saw a lot more snowfall than we see here. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we do have snowfall in Huntington. But it, anyhow, in Pittsburgh, the snow fell frequently uh, and the streets were cleared. No questions asked. Every fucking day that it snowed. There was a snow plow and a salt truck that went down the roads. Um, and that was awesome. That's not anything we see in Huntington, Right. The Huntington will let the snow pile up for fucking days. And then you drive over and it gets packed down to ice and you can't fucking drive anywhere. And I have personally called the city of Huntington to ask for my roads to be cleared uh, when I lived in the city of Huntington. And they told me that, uh, no, they weren't going to get to it. It wasn't their job. Uh, But to go back to Pittsburgh, so uh, my municipal local tax is also paid for recycling services and i know so i'm doing a lot of talking now i'm i hope you can extend me this liberty same uh but living in pittsburgh 
the the municipal taxes paid for recycling services, and I could set out whatever the f I wanted on the curb to recycle, and they would pick it up. I didn't have to separate it. I didn't have to. I didn't have to do anything. Yeah, I just see, set it out in a bin. Yeah, I could have put fucking trash out there. And see that. Then they that's picked what, it up. Uh, that's now, what happens when it, you have more people. Now, living com- with compared to Huntington. We we do have a, a recycling program which was uh, included. I'm not going to say it was free. It was clearly not for gratis. Um, it was somehow paid for by some program. But you had to drive your own shit down to the recycling center, and you had to fucking separate it yourself. And there were all kinds of things excluded that you couldn't put in there. And now. You have to pay an additional fee for it, and you still have to separate it and drive it down to the recycling center yourself. There's no, there's no city garbage truck coming to pick it up. Um, it's it's awful. Yeah. It, it, and I and I say this just because Huntington has instituted these fees that I have seen in other uh, locations, but uh, Huntington's not giving the services that I have seen in other locations uh, based on these fees. Does that make sense? So so to go back to your original point, Huntington has cranked up very slowly, and I agree with you, Sam, they've cranked up the cost of living here just ever so slightly year after year after year. And you even see it in the the, the cost of real property. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous what you pay per square foot in a home here i mean i think i think it's comparable to much larger markets you know major metropolitan areas like columbus lexington louisville um i don't know what people are expecting to get out of their properties here but the 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 prices are off the charts here and it's it's amazing to me and then you you add in the the city and county fees um it's crazy I mean, who would who would move here? Yeah, but yeah, so go on. I'm sorry, we well, got a little sidetracked here. Well, I'll take I'll take this right back to the rentals. I mean, that's somewhat what is making it a renter's market in Huntington for people that want to own rentals because people can't buy the houses, and yeah. even if they could buy the houses, the the houses that people can afford to buy, I'm talking about your average wage earner, they're the rundown pieces of shit. Mm-hmm that they're not ever going to have the money to be able to fix up in the first place. And the city's going to fee them to death. So it, it's it's made it unaffordable to have people living in there. And as much as I enjoy the, the rental property thing, I would I would really love to have uh, our town rejuvenated again. I'd like to get, get it so people are moving into Huntington so there's more residences in Huntington, not so much rental property. There's a really curious phenomenon happening here, though. Um, I think you'd have to agree. You you just mentioned the rejuvenization of Huntington, but I think you're referring to the the, the housing, the, the res, residential reju, rejuvenation. We are right smack in the middle of a rejuvenation of downtown Huntington. Oh, of, absolutely, of, of commercial Huntington, and I have to admit to the folks listening, it is awesome. Uh, we've not seen restaurants here. Uh, like there are now, um, and I'm talking, uh, of course, pre-COVID. You know the situation now kind of sucks. Well, let me th- 
let me throw oh, yeah. this in there. Go um, ahead, dude. You know, we we both know Phil Nelson, and a lot of that <laughs> is due to Phil Nelson and, and his partner uh, Jimmy Weiler. They, and then I, I think uh, Joe Tuma, Joe Tuma, had a they're, huge they're, role in this. Yeah, there's several uh, people local that surgeon. We, we probably personally know, um, but but that's not really the point. The, the The point is, is that these individuals are real are willing to take these risks. Yeah. Why, why can't our local government officials be willing to take the risks that it takes to save the rest of the town? Oh my God, Sam! This is another discussion. Yeah, this, this is, is another, another discussion. This is another three or four hour discussion yeah, they're, they're, about they're unable. And it, local the, the sad thing is, it's not even their money. No, uh, it, but the people that have their own money in the game are willing to do it. Yeah. So Huntington, I think the the government in Huntington. Is, so this is my, in a nutshell, interpretation of all this. So Huntington local government has outgrown itself uh, out so therefore they have to charge more fees to sustain themselves and then they're going to have to enforce some sort of code uh in order to maintain the revenue stream and to justify their continued existence oh, i yeah. mean would you agree with that yeah absolutely so, and I think one of the perfect examples of that is this, I don't know what you want to call it, but like the dilapidated property tax or the dila- the dilapidated property fees. Yeah, I, whatever. I, I recently got uh, screwed on that one. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, that's a story probably for another time. Yeah. I, I do want to throw something in here before <laughs> I forget that's important with the property. Uh, this is what I fundamentally believe is a good thing for someone that's wanting to invest in rental rental property. Um, rental property is a very good hedge against inflation, which the amount of money that's currently being printed in the United States, then it's, it's a surefire. We're going to have massive inflation here. Sam, uh, I absolutely want to pause you right there because I'm going to need a couple more beverages Oh, yeah. to talk about this inflation issue. This is important. Uh, and I think this is important for not only the people in in the listening area here, but the the whole the whole country. Um, but I do need a beverage to um, <laughs> to reflect to, on to, this issue of, wash down the of inflation. One. And uh, like I said before on the previous break, I don't know how to pause this fucking thing. <laughs> so uh, we're gonna play a little. Um, Be glad that your intro, brother is the, the first, intro uh, music again, and uh, I'm gonna go get a few cans of beer. All right, Fex, we'll be right back.
and we're back. We've got a couple more Miller lights going here. Um, and Sam and I've taken just a, a, a short opportunity to collect our thoughts and, and uh, regroup here. So um, reel me back in, Sam. What was it you were talking about before I decided to take this abrupt break? It was, I think you mentioned the I word, yeah, inflation. In- inflation. So before we go too deep down this rabbit hole, because I believe that all this money printing going on due to the COVID-19 pandemic is going to naturally create inflation. Uh, well, that, let me explain. I, I want to stop you right there. Yeah. I, I mean, we need I to sorry. say what is inflation. Uh, well, so well, I, I think everyone realizes what inflation is, but here's my take on this. Uh, if you want to give money away to people, which is what's happening in uh, this COVID-19 pandemic. Plus, it goes on every every motherfucking day, regardless of COVID-19. You're giving money away. You're, 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 you're just printing more. Yes. So you can, you can regain that by one of two ways. You can take it back in taxation, right? Yep. Which is probably not even possible at this point. At this point. I think you could, you could as a federal government, seize 100% of every person, every working person in this country. You could seize 100% of their income, and it would not cover this nonsense. Okay? So throw that out. You, you're not going to recover this by taxation. So the other alternative is to recover it in the form of inflation which means that the price so the value of the dollar the u.s dollar goes down which means that the price of goods sold on the u.s dollar go up correct i mean that's what i think that's by definition what inflation is yeah and i think that the the big the big key is um at any given time there is X amount of dollars floating around in, let's say, just some, and X amount of coins yeah, floating X around. X amount of coins, but just, <laughs> so so there's X amount of money mm-hmm. that is, and it's known. The Federal Reserve knows how much it is that's out in the circu- what they call circulation. But if if you suddenly dump a bag of five trillion more dollars into that circulation, then it makes. It, it, it inherently it makes every other dollar that's already out there worth less. It's diluting yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's diluting yes. it. Just like when companies print, you know, decide to issue more stock, the stock price of the company the goes price down. Goes down because absolutely. More, it's the exact same. Because the overall valuation of that company remains the same. Mm-hmm. There's just more shares, and so that's what I would say. That actually, that's a great comparison for the U.S. economy and how it pertains to inflation. The U.S. economy has a value an overall value but the more dollars that are out there printed by the federal reserve brings down the per dollar value exactly so you know they call it i think keynesian economics where they want the government wants inflation it helps governments to grow they want about two and a half percent inflation every year and this is this is true like um, economics um, and you'll probably get into this with some people that you talk to in the future, but they want it because it helps to keep the government growing and growing and growing. 
Because if you can print money forever, every single year, yeah. I, I could go down this forever, but I mean, it basically makes the government unaccountable for any decision they make financially because they can continue to print money. Yeah. But so back to the property thing with this inflation. So we know the government wants two and a half percent on average, and they try to maintain inflation of two and a half percent every year. That's why people that have, you know, career type jobs where they get paid salaries, they oftentimes, especially government employees, they get, you know, cost of living increases of about two and a half percent. That's true. At one point when I worked uh, as an employee of a local hospital, not going to name any names, I was privileged to have a three percent per year salary slash compensation increase. Yeah, and and they are keeping up with inflation. So imagine how awesome that is is. at my income level. Yeah, for me, it's like 50 bucks for you. It's like 50,000. No, not 50,000, but it turned out to be like 12,000 a year. I mean, I I don't want to brag, but no, I I, I know what that means. You get the the so-called, the air quote, cost of living increase is what they call it. Yeah, but the reality is, that's how much money your dollar has been devalued over the course of a year. Yeah, no, okay? absolutely. Yeah, so that's the reality of it. So if you, so the thing I was going to say about property is if you buy property at a fixed rate mortgage, meaning your mortgage is locked in at the money of the, you know, the 2020 money. Mm-hmm. Well, we already have talked about, you know, the government wants that money to inflate every year at 2.5%. So if you're locked in at, four percent mortgage in 2020 and you know rates can fluctuate up and down but the cost of living is going up it has to go up if the dollars become worth less and less and less then a rent that was 400 one year will be 425 then it'll be 450 it'll be 500 yeah so but your, your expense on that is going to main is going to be remains stays relatively stable yeah, your your financing expense stays the same no that okay that makes perfect sense and that's critical I mean, that is a huge, it's a, I've heard it said by several of my mentors, property, rental property is a bet against inflation. It's a hedge on inflation. Mm -hmm. You can keep up Mm -hmm. with inflation and make money against inflation if you own rental property. Uh, That's, um, that's enlightening. Yeah, it's a <laughs> that's, fact. It's and that's the byline of this thing. We're, we're uh, enlightenment from the fringe. Uh, but no, that is absolutely enlightening. I want to share a little anecdote here um, from my, my own personal finance standpoint. Everyone is aware nowadays that um, interest rates are going down and down and yeah. down and down, d- deeply down. And I have been encouraged from a number of individuals to refinance the mortgage on my home. And anytime I look at this, uh, first of all, I, I must have secured a loan on this house at the exact correct time with the exact correct credit score. I have what I think is an extraordinarily low rate. Um, I have a 15 year note. Uh, at two and seven eighths percent, so what two point eight seven five percent? I think. So you're telling me they basically gave you the house? Kinda, kinda. And the thing is, so I've been in this house for five years, and and I've accelerated payments on it. So it's as if I've been in this house and been in this mortgage for eight 
plus years. Uh, and the way that these mortgages are structured, you pay all your interest at the beginning. At the beginning. So I told people, well, it doesn't make sense for me to refinance. Yes, yeah, so maybe I can get my rate down to two and a quarter or two and three eighths or something like that. Um, plus, I would have to pay all the closing costs, you know, whatever that bullshit is involved with the bank. There, there's always several thousand dollars in securing a, a loan. Um, but the way I look at it, so I've, I've already spent in the last five, six years paying fucking interest on this place. I've paid the majority of the interest already. Right. So why would it be in my interest to refinance? Well, I think that's a fallacy. That's it, being the put the only there. way that it would be is if you're not deep into your loan. If you're just starting, oh yeah. If, if, I, so if there, you're there just are starting, or, or yeah. say if you were in a thirty-year mortgage and you could somehow get to a fifteen-year, but I'm just saying for me myself, yeah. like what you would have to do is get that amortization table, print it out, see where you are on the table, and add up how much yeah. interest from now till it was over that you would be paying, and see if the financing charges, if it would be, if it would save you three thousand dollars you know what i mean and yeah. i've well, i've done that on a couple of mine like so it's possible and that would only be david in in, in your case if you did not refinance it at a 15 year term if you refinance it at however many years you already have left which you can do so let's say you only had oh can i you can, I, I thought the only yeah. things so available you, were 15 and 30 nope, you can go you can go to huntington federal bank and you can say i just want I want to refi this and keep my current loan term. Can I go and say I want to pay it off in the next year? I want to finance for a year? Yeah. But see, that may not be. Can I do that? I don't know if you can specifically say that, but see, like I'm about to refinance one because I'm changing the name on it. Yeah. And I said to the guy, I said, he said, do you want to redo it at 15? I said, I've already paid a year and a half at it. Can we do 13 and a half? Can we just keep it the way it is? I want it paid Mm -hmm. off the same amount of time. He goes, yeah, no problem. And so... What well, I, that's how it should be. What I would, when you refi, like, yeah. why should you extend your well, your term out again? I would say, in a case like yours, don't don't change the term. Keep it however many years you have left to pay, and look at it. See, it's it's an actual math problem. Yeah. If well, it, does it I save mean, here, you money or not? Here's now, the short if you of were it: to I'm extend not, it 15 years. It wouldn't save you money. Yeah. Here's here's the short of it: I'm not fucking refining. <laughs> I know because uh, I think I have a great loan. And you won't I'm, be. You, I'm really gonna, far into it. I've given. I've already given this company a shit ton of interest, uh, and I'm on, I'm on the downside of the interest. That's how I look at it. But what, what the fuck ever. Banks have a difficult uh, time losing. Oh, uh, Jesus Christ! Well, I, well, I don't know. Look back at 2008. They claimed they were all losers. Yeah, gosh. I don't know. That, um, Sam's looking at his whiskey. Cup. He's, he, he thinks he needs some this more rabbit whiskey. hole man is uh I, we've gone down the rabbit hole a couple times tonight you know and i didn't even plan that uh but that's a very good comparison uh, go, going down the rabbit hole uh and again we're drinking rabbit hole bourbon this is the derringer bourbon which is uh quote straight bourbon whiskey finished in px sherry casks what the what the fuck does px sherry casks mean i 
I'm going to have to Google that at some point, but it's 46 and a half alcohol, uh, percent alcohol, which is, so you double that for the proof. That is 90, it's 93%. Gosh. Which is not terribly hot. It's not terribly hot. Um, oh, <laughs> it actually says 93 proof right next to it. I didn't. <laughs> Oh, come on now. You were uh, reading that and you were acting no, no, like you were doing the no, math. I actually did the math in my head, but now that I tilt the bottle up and look, it says 93 proof right there. But that's not crazy hot. But uh, no, this is a smooth drink. And the same, you can pour yourself as much of that as you want. Um, I bought this bottle in Charleston, by the way. I've, I um, I shop for bourbon pretty regularly. Um. I feel like in Huntington, West Virginia, we have a, a slightly better, yeah, the same popping, popping the cork over there by the uh, microphone. But I feel like in Huntington, West Virginia, we have a, a slightly better selection of bourbon than we than there is in the rest of the state because we are directly adjacent to Kentucky, where the huge majority of bourbon, excuse me, where bourbon is produced. Um. However, I found a bottle or two in Charleston, West Virginia, which is not quite central part of the state, but it's close to central part of the state. Um, far removed from Kentucky, uh, but Charleston has had a couple couple interesting bourbons that I can't find in Huntington, and that's that's strange. I do want to put out there like. I have not been able to find a bottle of Blanton's whiskey, I bet, in over three years now. Blanton's was a whiskey that I used to be able to buy uh, any day of the week in any liquor store locally in Huntington. Um, and I, and this, is, this is absolutely a sidebar uh Oh, no, I like the way this is going. Uh, I love the way it's going, too. But this is totally a sidebar uh, to what we're talking about. But the bourbon bourbon climate has changed drastically, in my opinion. And I think think everyone would agree with that. Um, And can we talk about bourbon? today i mean i don't know this is this is off topic but um well you can talk about it i can't add much to it i'll tell you that i am one thousand percent a bourbon person um bourbon i so i want to dispel uh a couple myths about bourbon first of all bourbon uh may be produced in any part of the united states of america not just Kentucky. That's that's the biggest myth. Everyone thinks that bourbon has to be made in Kentucky. Now, the fact is, most of the bourbon in the world is made in Kentucky. However, it can be made anywhere in America. Bourbon cannot be made in Scotland. Bourbon cannot be made in Canada. Cannot be made in Mexico. It has to be made in the United States of America. Did you know that, Sam? I did not know that. Why yeah. is that? Uh, well, it's there was there was some kind of bourbon act, bourbon purity act. I can't remember. And I think it was this occurred in the nineteen sixties. I should I probably should have been more prepared for this, but uh, there was some act of Congress 
that said bourbon shall only be made in the United States of America. Okay. So that's requisite number one. Can I ask you a question about that? You may. How can our country dictate what other countries produce? Um, well, fuck, we do that all the time. <laughs> I, mean, I like, mean, how can we do that? It's, no, I'm just saying, how can our law? How can we, how can our laws, you know, that's what makes other countries sovereign. Well, they should be able to make their own. I, well, but look at scotch. Scotch is has only. to be produced in Scotland. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I'm just playing devil's I, advocate. I, yeah, I know, but uh, no, I don't. How can they say that bourbon is only made in America? It's, it's a fucking law. It seriously is. No, I, I believe you. <laughs> I believe you. I'm not, um, I'm not disputing but, so it. That, that's requisite number one. It has to be produced in the United States. The second uh, requisite is that the grain bill has to be a majority of corn. So it, it has to be over 50% corn in the grain bill. The other grains may be things like barley, rye, wheat. Um, you know, you're going to see some crazy things out there like maybe oats uh, who knows but the the bourbon is simply has to be 50 plus percent corn um the third requisite is that bourbon must be aged in white oak barrels that have never been used before okay so we're talking about brand new barrels charred and bourbon bourbon eligible spirits placed in them they can't be old wine barrels they can't be old scotch barrels they can't be old beer barrels they have to they have to be never never been used before for anything else brand new barrels and then there's some shit like uh you can only put the you can the 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 spirit can only come off the still at um I can't remember. Someone's going to correct me, but I think the number is 160 proof off the still. Uh, it can only go into the barrel at like 140 proof. Again, someone's probably going to correct me. I, I should, I probably should have brought this up on the computer. Uh, and then I think it has to be aged for a minimum of two years. So anything that, so there's a lot of products that are similar to bourbon. In this country and in this world, uh, as far as uh, the, the the duration of their aging and their grain bill and stuff, and you know what the the proof is, uh, but bourbon is bourbon, and bourbon is is a, a yeah, it is a uniquely American product. Um, yeah, well, you know, you've gone on the bourbon trail multiple times, right? Oh, I've been to a bunch of distilleries. Well, I think I'd like to ask you here on this podcast to take me with you this fall because i've never been and i want to go if you can free Dude, up some um, time let's go if i ever go to another distillery i will take you with me it, i i have not been able to travel for a number of reasons <laughs> i know um, the number one reason well i have two newborn twins uh, which is a huge impediment to any travel uh second of all i have a, a very <laughs> very demanding job but i dedicate lots of time to and uh thirdly there's just uh, travel constraints with the coronavirus right now it's bullshit but no yeah, if, we if i to. um no and here's the thing I, i'm glad that we've diverged to this um uh, I, i'm glad we've got off topic to this because this is a, a topic very close to my heart and my brain and my soul um i am a maker's mark ambassador and what does that mean that's 
all you have to do is you sign up by email to uh, be a member of this Maker's Mark Bourbon Club. And they'll send you emails probably, I don't know, every quarter, so four times a year. And then every year at Christmas, they'll send you a free gift that will fit on a bottle of Maker's Mark. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's hilarious. So, you know, one year the, uh, I get a, a, a set of tiny insulated earmuffs, tiny enough to fit <laughs> on a bottle of maker's Mark bourbon. Awesome. The next year I get a tiny scarf that's small enough to fit on a maker's Mark bottle of bourbon. The next year after that, I get a tiny sweater that will slide down over a maker's mark ball of liquor. So I can go on and on and on. But anyways, but the the culmination, the the real high point of being a, a, a this maker's, year, this year getting a mask to put over. Oh me. God, probably <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, a COVID, I had to a COVID fucking mask. I had to interject. Well, I have that. to, and you may be right because I haven't got this year's gift. But anyhow, um, so the culmination of being a maker's mark ambassador is that you have access to a barrel of whiskey that is yours along with, I don't know, it's like 29 or, or 30 some other people. And they, they, they put your name on this brass plaque on a barrel of whiskey. And when it matures, they will bottle it and allow you to purchase those bottles with some kind of special label on it, identifying it as, as yours. And um, uh, if if Maker's Mark ever hears this podcast, they may correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, what this implies to me is that it's a single barrel whiskey, which is uh, which is very rare. Okay, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't realize that every uh, very most commonly every bottle of whiskey you buy off the shelf is a blend of hundreds or thousands of barrels of whiskey you know right but um this barrel has my name on it with some other individuals and apparently they're going to dump that into a bottle or a a number of bottles for me and so it it says to me it's a, it's a single barrel whiskey and uh, and that's special uh and this is all free to join the maker's mark ambassador program um, obviously you have to pay for the bourbon when you eventually get it, get it. Uh, but no, I've waited seven years for this and, and my barrel came to maturity. This is an, an interesting COVID-19 story. So I knew that any, any conversation, any interview that you do right now is going to somehow tie into COVID-19. It's bullshit. I'm totally over the virus, but whatever. Um, my barrel came into maturity at the beginning of March, uh, this wow. past year. Okay. And I got, you know, I got the, the so-called golden ticket from maker's mark. And it literally is a golden ticket. I got in the mail. It said, Hey, come and get your bottles, uh, from your, from your barrel, <laughs> you know, call us in I'm advance, sorry. schedule an appointment, blah, blah, blah. And literally two weeks later, they said, Oh, the distilleries closed to the public. And I was like, well, fuck, I, I mean, I want to get my special bottles. Well, you, yours may be aged eight years. So I recently got an email saying that the distillery is back open and they are going to extend my mature 
uh, bourbon out to sometime in September. So I, I have, I think I have till the end of September to pick it up. I'll, I'll go with you if you want. Well, and, and it would be advantageous if you went with me because the, there is a state limit. The state of Kentucky limits uh, anyone, any single individual to purchasing three liters of distilled spirits. Uh, three liters is not even a gallon. That's about roughly you know, three quarters of a gallon. As right? much as we both love Kentucky, <laughs> they are hardcore on the alcohol rules. They, uh, they are. They are. They are. Even though you they're, know, they're what's, producing what's, some uh, of the best alcohol in the world. What's the county? That's Is it green? What's what's the county right next to us where it's been dry? Right next to like where Ashland is? Uh, right outside where Grayson, Kentucky is. <laughs> I don't know. But I, you know, you, you could not buy alcohol over there. Lawrence County, Kentucky. Maybe it's Lawrence. I, yeah. I don't know. It, I, recently, I, don't, I don't know I the mean, geography. They're, they're, still a, they're still a significant, because they leave it up to the counties in Kentucky, there's still a good chunk of Kentucky that's dry. Oh, well, it's, that's, and that's very interesting. The same thing in Ohio. That's, I don't think it's counties in Ohio that are dry, but it's municipalities that are dry. I remember going over to South Point, Ohio, and going to um, the local uh, Mexican restaurant, I think, uh, Casa Grande. It's called there, oh. there's a there's a pitch for them and i we it was for this was for our mother's birthday like eight or ten years ago you served me up a big margarita and i told i asked i said i want a pitcher of margarita and the waiter says oh senor we don't serve margarita we are dry here and i was just i was taken aback because you assume that like they're People serve alcohol everywhere. Exactly. This is it, the United States of fucking well, America. It, but no, it, it, and the weird thing is, is people need to get with the times. I'm not saying that people need to drink, but if somebody wants to drink, they can get alcohol anywhere. Oh why, my gosh, why, it's commerce. Yeah, why not just It's commerce, it dude, and it is revenue for your municipality, for your county, for your state, for your federal government. It's money into the system for crying out loud. Like, why would you... Why would you prohibit that? Why would you exclude that as a revenue it, stream? It, to me, that's my question. To me, it probably had like religious. Well, of course, that's, the, that's the root of all this. But you know, you, it's so much easier to access purchasing it now than it was. 40 50 years ago well yeah well, you so go like, you, know, you go back to the so-called blue laws right <laughs> or blue collar laws whatever they called them um and it was based on i think it was loosely based on some kind of religious thing where you couldn't sell liquor or or, or any alcohol on sundays oh yeah and it wasn't so much, uh, it, as far as I understand it historically, it wasn't so much a religious thing. It was a white-collar versus blue-collar thing. So the blue-collar people were working on the weekends very often, right? Oh, yeah. The white-collar people were not. So the the, the, the blue-collar people didn't, didn't or the, well, no, let me walk this back. The blue-collar people were working during the week and did not have every opportunity to purchase the liquor. I, I misspoke at first. Yeah, blue collar people are working all during the week and don't have the same opportunity to buy liquor as the white collar people, who may only work a portion of the week. And that, so that's why these are called blue laws. They so they if you exclude the sale of alcohol on the weekends uh, and specifically Sunday, it excludes the blue collar worker. Huh. I mean that's. 
I can see that because they because they, they, they usually don't, work they Saturdays too. Just like I was saying yeah, with well my they, lawn business earlier they in the show, you know, they, they don't have any other opportunity to buy the product, right? Right, because they're always fucking working. Sunday might be their only day off. So yeah, that's why they were called the you know in air quotes. You can't see me, but in air quotes, that's why they're referred to as the blue laws. Uh, and we have these in West Virginia. We. Uh, I've never understood. I think that they Jesus. have I've, relaxed them considerably here. Well, they have relaxed them. I, I guess it depends on what your definition of considerably. Well, is. you used to not be able to buy it at all. Now you can buy it after yeah, one so, or something. Well, it depends. On, so what what alcohol product are you talking about? So I, on, I'm just talking about beer. I don't know about. I don't drink as so much. So in West Virginia, on Sunday, you always could buy beer and wine after 1 p.m. Okay. Okay. What Sorry, they, folks, I've misspoke. <laughs> what they have changed it to is now you may buy beer, wine, and distilled spirits after 1 p.m. on Sunday. That's what it's changed to. Okay. And that was, um, that's commonly referred to as the brunch bill in West Virginia because, a lot of businesses wanted to serve um, uh, spirit-containing cocktails with brunch on Sunday. You know, brunch is very commonly served on Sunday. And they wanted to open uh, the restaurants before 1 o'clock. Actually, so I guess... Also, you can buy, I guess you can buy spirits before one o'clock on Sunday. So, yeah, so it opened up the sale of spirits on Sunday. And I think it, it um, took, took away some time constraint on Sunday. I, again, I, I may be wrong on all of this, but the bottom line is you can buy, you can buy distilled spirits on Sunday in West Virginia now. But, um, I remember when I was in college, I went to, I went to college in Buckhannon, West Virginia, as an Upshur County. Um, there were adjacent towns and adjacent counties that would not sell beer or alcohol. And as I understood it at the time, it was just a municipal decision, a municipal ordinance, ordinance which I personally think is bullshit i mean like how can how can alcohol be legal uh at the federal level at the national level and then someone say no we're not going to sell it here and now i know that i mean that goes down to states rights and and we want to respect the state's rights correct correct Um, i'm pretty big on that but i i just I would go back to my uh, original original argument here. It's a it's a revenue issue. Why would you deny take, your county or yeah, your? Why would you take away that revenue from your municipality from your local government? Um, exactly. If someone because it's buy huge, it, it's it yeah. is ginormous, and you can set it wherever you want, and people will buy it. Well, my thing is, and, and it doesn't just have to be alcohol, just anything commerce-wise. Yes. If someone wants to buy it, they're going to buy it. 
Absolutely. They are going to find where it is to buy. Yeah. And so I think you can apply this to cigarettes, alcohol, like whatever. You can set the tax wherever you, wherever you want. Like I got it. Let me, I'll give another anecdote here. I bought liquor in Charleston the other day. It may have been this bottle of rabbit hole. I can't remember. But I remember looking at the receipt and the sales tax on it was 12%. Jeez. Which is above and beyond the sales tax for any other good in Charleston. Right? Correct. But they can set the sales tax for alcohol at 12%. They can set the sales. I bet they could set the sales tax for alcohol at 50% and people would still fucking buy it. Yep. Uh, and same with cigarettes. You know, we've tried to tax the shit out of cigarettes for decades. You know, I, I can recall when I was in high school. So we're talking about 1989, 1990. I could walk across the street from the old Huntington High School and drop three quarters into a machine at the Dwight's drive-in restaurant. And pull out a pack of camels. Wow. 75 cents. 75 cents. Okay. Over and there where West Banco is now. Yeah. That, yeah. So Dwight's has been gone for a number of years, but uh, Sam still remembers the topography. Uh, yeah. So a couple things going on here. There, First of all, there was no one to check your ID. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the cigarette machine was right inside the door to enter the place okay and you just drop three quarters in it um pulled the knob and uh, a pack of cigarettes dropped out nowadays uh there are no more cigarette machines um and if you want to buy cigarettes you gotta go to a, a, a convenience store and um you're going to show your ID and you're going to pay about $7 a pack. I think for camels or Marlboros or cools or, you know, any of the name brands. Um, yeah. So I, again, this is off topic, but the, the landscape has absolutely changed. And, um, alcohol is alcohol. I think that, Alcohol should be able to be sold everywhere. It's a source of revenue for every municipality, uh, every locale. It's a, I think it's a social lubricant. I think it can be used responsibly. There, there are people that have issues with it, whatever. Um, we're going to take a little break here again uh, because Sam has said to take a phone call. And I want to remind the listeners that I don't know how to pause this thing. So here's a little... Bumper music.
Well, all right, folks, we're back uh, with that brief break. Uh, Sam had to take a phone call, and it turns out that Sam's going to have to take off. Um, so we'll have to conclude this interview. I uh, First of all, I want to ask Sam if he has any kind of remarks uh, in closure here. We, I, we've, gone, we've gone a spectrum, uh, you know, from the start of your business to uh, from lawn care to real estate. Uh, I, I had wanted to talk a little bit, little bit about your, um, handyman services. And so maybe we can address that at a future interview. Um, we've all, we've also spent some time talking about, uh, bourbon and cigarettes, taxation, whatever. But uh, how about you wrap this up for us, dude? Yeah, well, first of all, I appreciate uh, you allowing me to be on here. I think it was really fun to tell my story. I hope some people learn some stuff from me. Uh, if they have any questions, they can always contact me through you. Um, you know, we hit on a lot of things. I think we uh, we really had a very good conversation, and I look forward to having some more in the future, man. Yeah, so we'll have you on as a guest in the future for certain because uh, there are clearly some things we didn't get to. I, can you believe that we have conversed for an hour and 43 minutes? That's very, very hard for me to believe, other than the fact that my wife's blowing me up, so she must. Yeah, so be. what this means to me is I'm going to have to buy a premium membership to some podcast <laughs> hosting bullshit. No, I'm just kidding. I was going to do it anyways because I didn't want to constrain myself. Um but no, so I, uh, Sam, I certainly appreciate you coming out and, and um, being candid with me. Yeah, um, anytime. And talking about, uh, yeah, we didn't talk about anything uh, super difficult. Um, but, uh, you know, in the future, I, I do want to delve more into your your business life um, and maybe get your, your views on the, the, the current political climate. Yeah, uh, they're, uh, they're, they're out there to be uh, told. Dude, uh, things are weird, but I'm I'm just going to wrap this up and say that that's a topic for another conversation. Um, so in closure, I'm going to say uh, that um, we we thank Sam Denning for being here as a guest, um, and I hope that the people have found this enlightening, um, and I want you to. Please tune in again to the Borderlands broadcast, Enlightenment from the Fringe.